Sports talk with a little bit of an edge. Can you feel the tension in the air right now? I know I can. I can feel it all the way down in my plums. The Adam Crowley Show on ESPN Pittsburgh. Center, second and goal. Make it to White. Look it around. Has time. Throws it. Did he get the feet down? What an effort. Touchdown, Amendola. That painful, pricking sensation you felt as a Steeler fan yesterday was about three and a half hours of football voodoo. You are the dolls. The Jaguars and Patriots were stabbing you with the pins. So were the refs, by the way. And then at the end of the game, that big stab in the back, the finishing blow, the death blow, that came from James Harrison. I'm Tim Benson for Adam Crowley. Let me say in advance, at no point will I be getting anything pierced or waxed during this broadcast, nor will I be discussing the possibility of it happening. Look, I know what he's into. But the rate of alienating Adam's audience, I will not be piercing or waxing any body parts between now and 7 o'clock. Speaking of getting waxed, that might be what happens to his West Virginia Mountaineers tonight. He's getting ready to watch the fighting Jamie Dixons beat West Virginia, right? Isn't that his plan tonight? Adam may not survive. And Jamie, he may not survive either. He just got tossed from the last game, didn't he? Got thrown out? Was he 47 feet on the court again? Playing defense at the top of the key like he always was in his crouch position? Or do the officials just throw him out for calling too many timeouts after made baskets? I heard that's a technical foul these days, too. And I think Huggy Bear and company should actually do just fine. But let's start with football. It's the Patriots and the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Boston fans versus Philly fans. It's the Bill Burr Bowl. We're going to have to play that clip sometime later in the show. But my God, get ready for the two most insufferable weeks of all time. Philly fans versus Patriots fans. One of those two fan bases is going to be happy on the Monday after the Super Bowl, and that should make all of us sad. How much does that suck to realize? Think about those two fan bases collected in the same stadium for four hours on Super Bowl Sunday. Just think about that and have it wash all over you. You will never find more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Exactly. Think about how that's going to go down. Philly and Boston fans in the same building for four hours watching a, watching a Super Bowl. Especially now in the age of Twitter, in the age of social media. It's so much bigger than what it was when they squared off a few years ago. It's going to be a contest about who can out-obnoxious the other one for two weeks. At some point, two weeks from now, Philly fans or Patriot fans will be planning a friggin' Super Bowl parade. Wrap your brain around that. I know some talk show hosts around here are doing the who are you going to root for thing, and it's just it's obvious. It's got to be Philadelphia. I mean, why are we trying to leverage this any other way? Sure, we hate Philly, but isn't that entirely based on the Flyers rivalry? It's not like if the Eagles win, Terry Bradshaw is going to present the trophy to Ron Hextall. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, we hate the city. Yeah, Flyer fans are Eagle fans and vice versa. But I can see Team Green win and not want to vomit. Team Orange and Black, oh, I'd hurl down the front of my shirt. Plus, the Patriots are the forces of evil. They are our white whale in Pittsburgh. They are the kings of the castle, and no one has been able to successfully storm it yet. 
And ever since the Steelers had seized historical Super Bowl supremacy back from the 49ers, we all worried that this day would come. We all thought the Patriots may get six before the Steelers got seven. And more importantly, that the Pats may get seven while the Steelers stay stuck on six. Now it's here. And the best chance that we've got to make sure that doesn't happen is Nick Foles and the friggin' Eagles. In the words of Dave Chappelle, yuck. But to continue the Star Wars analogy from earlier, help us, Obi-Wan Ajayi. You're our only hope. I'm selling out for Philadelphia. If you could craft an argument as to how or why there's any dispute as to who to root for in this Super Bowl, then please do it. But I think it's so open and shut in favor of the Eagles. Painful as that may be to hear, I'll be wearing green in two weeks from now. That's for damn sure. 412-922-2874. And now let's get to the AFC Championship game itself. As I wrote for the trip today, watching that AFC Championship game turned me into an angst-addled, irrational little ball of hate. And I'm sure many of you actually feel like that happened a long time ago before Sunday. You might be right. I won't refute that. But if it didn't happen before Sunday, it did right after kickoff. Patriots win over Jacksonville 24-20. If you were like me and you watched that game strictly from a black and gold perspective, it was three-plus hours of water torture. Much like the Super Bowl discussion, who are you supposed to root for there? It couldn't be the Patriots. New England has been this... Big, giant, red, white, and blue blockade for our city's Super Bowl dreams three times in the Heinz Field era. Not to mention all those regular season humiliations along the way. Couldn't be the Jaguars either, though. How do you root for a team that beat your own club twice in one season and endlessly mocked the whole franchise on the way out of Pittsburgh last week? It was like T.J. Hushmanzada cleaning his cleats with a terrible towel on steroids. To use a Mike Tomlinism, there was no way to seek comfort in the result. When it looked like Jacksonville was about to win, Steelers fans had to be wallowing in a giant vat of what-if thinking. What if the Steelers had gotten a shot at Brady throwing with an injured thumb? His receivers and backs were dropping passes and fumbling. The first-half Patriots defense appeared as vulnerable as the Steelers did against Jacksonville two weeks ago. What if this finally would have been the game when the Steelers went to Foxborough and, uh, never mind, that was going to happen. There's no way that was going to happen. Like, that's where you slapped yourself and realized, that, that, well, who are we kidding? There's no way the Steelers' defense would have held up against New England's offense in the same way that Jacksonville's defense did. The Steelers don't have the linebackers to cover people like that. The Steelers don't have a pass rush like that. The Steelers don't have a secondary to stick with the wide receivers the way that Jacksonville's did. That just wasn't going to happen. The Steelers' defense never would have put up the fight that Jacksonville's did against Brady and company. After all... It never has at Gillette Stadium in the past. Without Ryan Chazier, it would have been worse this time around. But the mind can wander, I suppose. Then when it became clear New England would win, that's when depression set in. The team, Western Pennsylvania, loves to hate, now has a record, 10 Super Bowl appearances to the Steelers' second place eight. If New England wins the Super Bowl two weeks from now, That'll tie the Steelers for their record of six. Plus, do we even really need to get like that deep about it? It's the Patriots again. Really? It's not only Pittsburgh team history being threatened that made Sunday a tough watch at Gillette Stadium. It was how the game unfolded. 
the knife just kept getting twisted in the back of Steelers Nation. Tom Brady executes a quarterback sneak in a crucial situation. He didn't even get a concussion in the process, believe it or not. That play is legal. It often works. And apparently it's not an automatic injury waiting to happen for the quarterback. Who knew? Well, you, me, and everybody else, except for Haley, Roethlisberger, the Roonies, Tomlin, whoever it is, said that Ben Roethlisberger can't run a quarterback sneak. Then, of course, there was James Harrison pressuring Blake Bortles into a Kyle Vanoy sack and fumble. That could change yet, by the way. How is that not Harrison's sack? I keep checking. It hasn't changed yet. He didn't get credit for a sack on that. But, of course, that happened. I mean, for weeks. How many times have you heard some yinzer tell another yinzer, you know, it's going to happen. He's going to sack Big Ben on that final drive to the AFC Championship game. Well, all right, so he didn't sack Big Ben, but he did to Bortles. It was the same thing. That play is what we've all been envisioning taking place, and it happened. You know that, you know it's going to happen. It happened. Like with Dale, Lolly, and I, who's going to join us a little, when we do our three guarantees, I would have guaranteed James Harrison is going to get a sack on Ben Roethlisberger the last drive of the AFC Championship game. And he did it! And it wasn't even Ben. It was Bortles. Even the officials joined in the fun of kicking Pittsburgh while it was down. On the one hand, the Jacksonville secondary finally got flagged for a few pass interference calls. Finally! An officiating crew flagged those guys for the non-stop illegal contact they get away with. Yet, they let the Patriots get away with more. Yet the unfortunate residue of those calls helped the Patriots. In one case, a big pass interference flag led directly to a touchdown at the end of the second quarter. Then the potential overturned fumble by Deion Lewis that actually was upheld against the Patriots by the replay gurus. How many people in Pittsburgh were sitting around watching that going, now Al Riveron grows a conscience. Now. Hey, maybe New England doesn't get all the breaks from the Zebras, as we learned yesterday. But then you look at the box score, it's New England with 98 yards of penalties against the Jags to Jacksonville's 10 that they, that they got tagged for. The whole game was nothing but painful irony dipped in petty jealousy with a side order of emotional conflict. That's all it was. Perhaps the better approach for me or any other fan watching would have been this. Don't view it with the attempt to make yourself feel better about your own team based on the outcome of the two rivals. Don't try to spin the narrative to make yourself feel better about how the season ended based on the result itself. New England is still the conference king. That stinks. But it's true. This stinks too, and it's also true. Jacksonville didn't fluke its way past an overconfident Steeler team. The Jaguars are flat out better. The Steelers are the third best team in the AFC. That's it. No better, no worse. We have to deal with that reality as 2018 approaches. And then at least as the Pats victory was ending, we could flip on the Eagles game and see those jerks from across the state in Philadelphia lose big time to Minnesota. Well, never mind. But you get the point. You know, some Steelers fans may be looking for comfort in the wake of how the AFC Championship game turned out. In other words, the fact that the Jaguars played as well as they did against the Patriots justified the loss in the divisional round at Heinz Field, so to speak. Okay, I'll buy that a little bit. Like, I was actually at the gym 
as people were watching this game, and I heard somebody say exactly this. Well, if the Jaguars win, I guess that makes us feel better about losing to them, right? Oh, uh, okay. All right. Steeler fans couldn't take that kind of solace after the 94 season when San Diego went on to the Super Bowl and then lost by three touchdowns to the 49ers after their three-river stadium upset. Similarly, Pittsburgh fans could only throw their hands up in disgust as Tim Tebow in Denver went on and laid a giant egg at Gillette Stadium against the Pats after their OT surprise at Pittsburgh the week before during the 2011 playoffs. So the Jacksonville loss, it wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just because the Steelers were looking ahead to New England, although I do think that helped motivate the Jaguars. They lost because the Jaguars are better. We have to admit it. Yes, the Jaguars are a better team, even with Blake Bortles at quarterback. The Steelers aren't just second best to New England. They're, they aren't even that good anymore. They're, you used to be able to say, okay, they're runners-up to the Patriots every year. That sucks, but they're runners-up to the Patriots every year. Well, now they're just also rants. And that feels a lot worse than being second best to the Patriots. I thought coming into this season, the Steelers were second best to the Patriots. If they had gone up to Gillette Stadium and lost, even if it was in the same fashion of last year against the Patriots, I could have said, okay, that's how the season was supposed to go. See, I'm not somebody that tries to take comfort in, oh, well, the Jacksonville Jaguars are better. At least we didn't choke it away this time. We lost to a good team. No. Then the season didn't go the way you thought it would. Best case scenario, you upset Philadelphia, excuse me, you upset New England, then you get Philadelphia now as it turns out in the Super Bowl. Wow, what a daily double that would be to win that, huh? Beat Boston and Philly on the way to your seventh championship? Are you kidding me? How great would all that feel? You know, even think about it from that perspective. There was this little segment of Steeler fans that were out there. They were basically saying, you know what? I don't care what happens in the Super Bowl. I just want to beat the Patriots in the AFC Championship game. Well, imagine how that tone would have changed when you had Philly there. If you had gotten past New England in the AFC bracket this year, you would have had Philly. We've, what, three times now that's been a prospect? Four times, if you want to count, this year? Pittsburgh and Philly in the Super Bowl, and it just never manifested. This would have been it. You would have been looking at Nick Foles to get your seventh Super Bowl. Ben Roethlisberger versus Nick Foles. Lev Bell versus Ajayi. Antonio Brown versus the the Eagle defense. I'll, I'll take all those for the Steelers. I will. At least offensively, anyway. And Nick Foles. As Mike Tomlin so infamously once said, Foles is Foles. Yes, he is. And somehow he's in the Super Bowl. But I'll take the Patriots to romp him, and I would have taken the Steelers to win. But you didn't get it. So to me, there is no comfort in, well, Jacksonville put up a good fight. Jacksonville, by extension, looks like a better team. It's not just a bad matchup. It's not just the Steelers not being ready to play. But in so admitting, you also admit you're third best in the conference in doing that. And you're also admitting season didn't go the way it was supposed to go. The Steelers weren't supposed to beat the Patriots this year. The Steelers had a chance to beat the Patriots this year. The Steelers weren't supposed to win the Super Bowl this year, but the foundation was laid. And if you played your best game and the best opportunity in Foxborough or if Al Riveron hadn't gotten involved and the Pats came back to the Steel City. You still probably would have been underdogs, but you could have pulled it off. 
So I take no comfort from the fact, oh, well, Jacksonville is a good team. Well, if they're a good team, they're better than you. If you're admitting that wasn't a fluke, then you got to admit as well that the Jaguars were better. And you got room now to catch up against them and to catch up against New England next year. 412-922-2874. You can also tweet me, at Tim Benz, PGH. When we come back, we talk about all those topics with Dale Lawley, ooh, who's now editor-in-chief of DKPittsburghSports.com. It's quite the promotion. How do you climb the corporate ladder so fast over there? I was there a year. I didn't even get a promotion. Dale Lolly up next. Tim Benson for Adam. Tim Benson for Adam today. Just uh, reading from Cleveland.com as we come back from break. Mary Kay Cabot reporting Todd Haley is trading in his terrible towel for a dog bone. The Browns are on the verge of landing one of the league's most successful offensive coordinators and their former Steeler rival offensive coordinator's boss, Todd Haley. Browns and Haley are close to agreeing to a contract, and he should be named their first offensive coordinator under Hugh Jackson soon, a league source tells Cleveland.com. As of now, none of the bars in the flats have been reached for comments. Joining me right now to discuss that and other issues surrounding the Pittsburgh Steelers, as I read right now from a press release from DKPittsburghSports.com, he is the esteemed Steelers beat writer, and he has now been elevated to the role of editor-in-chief. It's my co-host on the Steelers pregame show on DVE, Dale Lally. Mr. Editor-in-Chief, thanks for joining us. Hey, what's up, Tim? You, you haven't actually been to Cleveland in a while, have you? It's been quite some time. The flats are dead, man. There's nothing there. Yeah, but Todd Haley going to bars that don't make a lot of sense isn't exactly a departure for him, correct? Uh, I mean, you could say that that bar didn't make a lot of sense for him, but it's close to the stadium, and you know, it, it does have a pulse. There's a lot of people there. It's very popular with the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what do you make of that? Let's start with that. Todd Haley going to the Browns under Hugh Jackson with a quarterback to be named later. What do you think? I think it's a great move for Cleveland. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, Tim, if we'd have been sitting here. Uh, two weeks ago, and we and we said, okay, the Steelers are going to lose to the Jaguars and score forty-two points, and they're going to lose the game. And you're going to say the only coaching, the only change on the coaching staff, the only guy who gets fired for that is Todd Haley. Um, I would have told you, I mean, come on, get serious. Yeah, but you know why they did it. It had nothing to do with oh, offensive. I know why they did it, but the but that's the only change. Oh, the only I mean, change. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then, then we can talk about why other guys should have been let go. But yeah, that leads me to believe, Dale, that they might have even won the Super Bowl and Haley would have been gone. Well, there's certainly that belief. And, and maybe it was just the, the situation between Ben Roethlisberger and, and Todd Haley had become untenable. Uh, and that might, you know, we don't know. I mean, both guys have, have talked about it and said that, you know, they, 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 there were no real problems there. And of course, Ben says, you know, hey, I've, I've had issues with everybody. Um, which he has. Uh, but so. it never got in the way with Arians like it did to a degree with Wisenhunt, and it did eventually with Haley. Did it get in the way? I'm not sure. I don't know if this was, if it got in the way or if this was a preemptive strike. Um, I feel like it did at times. I wonder if some of the third and shorts and fourth and short situations were plays that Ben checked into that Haley would have preferred he didn't, and Ben wanted to be. like. I, I think Ben would go along with just about any play that Randy Fittner set in. I think there are times where there were certain situations where Ben just didn't want to do something because Haley sent it in. 
He's been kind of like that, though, with everybody, hasn't he? I mean, there's, he, he wants to do things. This has been his M.O. his entire career. He wants to do things his own way, regardless of, of anybody else's input. Were that's those, why he had problems with Wizenhunt. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's why I, that's why I think it got yeah. in the way with Wizenhunt, too. But that's the difference with Arians, I believe, was more of a stylistic thing than it was a I believe in the play call that's being sent in thing. Well, that and Arians was getting him killed. I mean, other than that, uh, ask Carson Palmer about that. Uh, it, it's 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 unfortunate. I think I think Todd Haley's a great hire. Uh, to get back to our original point for for Cleveland, you're bringing in a young quarterback. Um, you know, no matter what people in Pittsburgh happen to think about Todd Haley, uh, and, and it's easy to, to second guess the offensive coordinator when because everybody says, "Well, in the past doesn't work. Why didn't you run the ball? Or when the run doesn't work, why didn't you throw the ball?" Uh, and everybody plays Madden, and they, you know, they think it's easy to call plays. Fact of the matter is, is that is that he has coordinated some very good offenses in the NFL. And you're looking at a team in the Browns that's going to have two top five draft picks, where they have like six of the first 50 picks or something like that, something ridiculous, and about what 130 million in cap space. I mean, they could they could really make a big splash this year. And, and I don't know if they can become this year's Rams. Uh, because, you know, it's going to take some time for a young quarterback to, to develop a little bit. Uh, but they can certainly take some steps. Dale Lolly, editor-in-chief and Steeler beat writer at DKPittsburghSports.com. As editor-in-chief and Steelers beat writer, are you sort of like Hugh Jackson or Andy Reid? Like, are you in charge of your own play calling? Like, if, you, if your own copy stinks, who's at fault, the editor-in-chief or the beat writer? Well, you know, ultimately the, the, <laughs> the final uh, call for that comes uh, falls on my head, Tim. Uh, kind of like the head coach. You could fire uh, yourself. I guess I would have to. I'd have to have to fire myself as the uh, as the play caller. What's going to happen next year for the other coordinator for Keith Butler as we look forward to the Steelers? And I don't know what you thought, Dale. I, my big takeaway, X and O wise, and I'm going to talk about this with Matt Williamson a little bit later on. We actually discussed it on Wednesday for our final show from South Park, um, our final countdown to kickoff. What struck me was an underscored feeling that I had going into the game that. It wasn't even so much about the pass rush, the front four of what the Jacksonville Jaguars were doing to keep themselves in the game defensively against the Patriots. The coverage down the field and across the middle of the field with the Miles Jacks and the Telvin Smiths and, of course, that secondary, that to me was the differentiation between the Jacksonville defense against New England as opposed to Pittsburgh's. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, you know, the, 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 the Jaguars still moved the ball against the Patriots. They had, what, 380 yards or whatever it was. They just didn't turn the ball over like the Steelers did. They didn't give them basically 14 points. Um, no, I, now, meant, I meant more about the matchup against New England that Jacksonville threw out there. Not so much how the Steelers played against the Jags, but the eternal quest of how do you get over the Patriots. Oh, it, yeah. It was always, well, just be like the Giants and get the pass rush with four up the Okay. And the Steelers have tried to do that, and they did that differently this year than relying on their outside linebackers. But what they don't have is the ability to cover once they rush with four, even if they're rushing with four more effectively. Well, I thought that they defended the Patriots pretty well for, what, 58 minutes of that game that they played here. Uh, New England had 19 points because they missed an extra point, so 20 points through three-plus you know, three quarters in that game. I, I mean, I don't know that the Steelers are that far away. I know they lost, and they lost to, to, the, to the Jaguars, and they lost to the Patriots. I think we can both say that, that those were the two better teams on those days. They lost to the Jaguars twice, for God's sakes. Uh, you know, so 
um, they have to get better. Now, you look at that Jaguar, and I've seen people, you know, that this Jaguar's defense is exactly what the Steelers should, should try to do. Okay. Well, you know, the Jacksonville, uh, all they need is, uh, what? Five top five picks in a row. That'll fix things. Is that what you want to go through? I mean, Jacksonville was three and 13 last year. And, and they've gone three and 13 pretty much every year to get all those good players. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult to build that through the draft. You have to get a little bit lucky, but then, um, you know, short of luck and, and getting, you know, some some good players at the bottom of the first round of the draft, you kind of have to scheme it up a little bit. Um, yeah, well, it's not like they haven't put first-round grades on guys and then draft them for the defense, though. I mean, there's a lot of first-rounders out there. Maybe they just haven't had the right first-rounders that Jacksonville did. I, I think we can admit that there's a big difference between taking Jalen Ramsey third overall and taking Artie Burns 28th or wherever he was drafted at. I mean, you're getting the, you're talking about the, the number one cornerback in the draft class, a guy who's considered a generational player and a guy who's the sixth rated cornerback in everybody's drafts. I mean, that's a big difference. Okay. So they're not going to lose their way out then, Dale. How do they get the defense better? Well, I think they have to continue to build and I think they have to continue to tweak it. And it's about the scheme as well. Um, you know, I don't think that the scheme doesn't work because I've seen it work. Um, and I've seen, what this, you know, it, this isn't the same scheme that they ran under Dick LeBeau. Uh, and it has gotten better year after year. I mean, they, what were they, 21st overall in Butler's first year, uh, 12th last year, and they, and they were fifth this year. Now people will try to say, well, they played a bunch of bad quarterbacks. You play who you play. And the bottom line is they, they had a six and two record against teams with winning records this year, which matched New England for the best record in the league in those, in those kind of games. So they didn't play all bums. Um, you know, I think that they need to find a replacement for Ryan Shazier. That's a big hole. It's a huge hole to fill. Um, he was the one guy. He, he still, despite not playing, what he not play, the last five games, he still led all linebackers uh, in interceptions and pass defenses this year. Yeah, that's the, exactly the kind of guy I was talking about that they had that is similar to some of the Jacksonville guys that they no longer do. And I think schematically... You know, I, I like the change that they've made schematically, Dale, to not rely on outside pass pressure so much from the three, four outside linebackers that they had. But now they're kind of stuck personnel wise. I mean, if you look at their outside linebackers, and all we've talked about all year long is how are they in coverage? How are they in coverage? That's why James Harrison isn't here anymore. He wasn't any good in coverage. Okay, well, maybe they need guys that just are pure coverage guys. At the linebacker position, you work on getting your pass rush from guys who are based down linemen, uh, kind of like we just talked about with Jacksonville or uh, you know what, what the Giants had done before or some other teams that just rely on getting four and then covering with their backers. Well, I think ideally you'd, you'd like to have another T.J. Watt. I think Watt is, is pretty good in coverage. I think he gives you some size out there. I think he gives you the ability to cover in space. Um, the problem is, is that Bud Dupree is not that guy. And he's not a pass rusher, so I don't know. That's what I mean. They're stuck, and they don't have the inside linebackers right now to do it either, to be honest with you. Right. They, they don't have the inside linebackers. I mean, I think Vince Williams is a nice complimentary player, uh, but as we saw when Ryan Shazier went out, he's not the lead dog. Uh, he's not a guy who's going to be, you know, your, your enforcer in the middle. I think he's, you know, he, he worked well in tandem with Shazier because Shazier was able to do make plays on all three levels. Same thing. I think losing Ryan Shazier also exposed Mike Mitchell a little bit more than what the Steelers would have liked. 
because, you know, I mean, he had two pass defenses all season from the free safety position. Two. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's an easy more fix. Than you and I had. That's, a, that's an easy fix. Just let him go. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, but you've got to find somebody to replace him. I but mean, they've always done that, though, right? I mean, they've been good at bringing in safeties. You know, he had they have they two have decent been, years. I mean, Ryan Clark was brought in. Brent Alexander was brought in. That's, that's one position where they're not afraid to address it in free agency. They feel like they can get value there. Well, here, and here's one thing that I've, I've kind of thrown out there, and I have yet to have anybody tell me that it's not a good idea. I'd put Cam Sutton back there. I'm fine with that. Um, I mean, like, especially nowadays when you're not allowed to hit anybody big anyway, why not put another corner back there? Right. I mean, you want to put your best five defensive backs on the field. He played some free safety at, at uh, Tennessee. I think he's more than smart enough to handle the position. And like you said, you can't hit like you used to. Get another cover guy out there. Plus, if you're going to keep I, Hayden, which I think they want to do, right? Yeah, I, yeah I, I can't see why they wouldn't. They probably will have to redo the contract, though, correct? Um, they may they may try to extend him a year or something like that. I guess that Bell to, Bell might factor into that decision depending on what they yeah. do with him. But I mean, right. the big thing too is extending Roethlisberger another season or two and lowering that cap number. Yeah, whether it's real extension or just cap manip- manipulation extension, I, I follow. Right. Yeah, but, I mean, I mean twenty three point two million. I, I think that's a fine idea, Dale. And actually, I mean, I kind of talked about it in terms of going dime more often next year. But yeah, I mean, if you want to stick with your base 3-4 or you know a nickel look or whatever and he's still on the field as somebody in the secondary that's a little bit deeper as opposed to uh the nickel back because you want to they they obviously do want to keep Hilton they've kept Hilton so you keep Hilton in the nickel back role uh you're not displacing Artie Burns necessarily and you're keeping Sutton on the field now I like it because you just you don't need a thumper back there anymore so get a guy who covers better yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, I think he's smart enough to do it, and that gets your best five defensive backs on the field. Now, I still think they have to go out and get a, a new free safety, uh, or at least a draft a young guy there. But I think that gives you some some flexibility there. You you have a a three player competition between Golden, uh, Sutton, and whatever rookie you bring in. What about Allen? Where does he fit in, or is he just a special teamer? I think he could eventually work into the line. I mean, he's he's a big corner, and you just can't find those guys, and he's athletic. Um, you know, I, I think at some point, uh, maybe he's your long-term replacement for Joe Hayden. Um, we'll see. I mean, I, I haven't seen enough of him in game action to uh, to make any kind of uh, final declaration on him, and let's see what he is uh, going into camp next year. And lastly, Dale, what happens with Le'Veon Bell? The report today was the Steelers will not – talk to him about a long-term contract extension until they get him under the franchise tag. To me, that's almost I don't know, counterproductive or counterintuitive. I, I don't know what the point is there. What do you make of that, and what do you think they'll do? I mean, it's kind of what they did last year, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't get why. I, I don't get what the point is. Why not just use the time now to try to figure out if you can hit a, hit a number, and if you know you can't, then you franchise him. Well, I mean, right now they have some other bookkeeping things that they have to take care of. They've got it. They've got guys that they got to get uh, restricted tags on, and those kind of things. And I mean, honestly, they have to see what the salary cap is going to be. At this point, well, when does that number come know. out? When does that number come out? As opposed to when it's the typically right around the combine. So you're talking like the end of February, about a week before, week or so before free agency starts. I mean, and, and we've seen it before in years past where. Everybody estimates that it's going to come in at this number, and it either comes in higher or lower than what is expected. 
Um, hey, so look, I mean, I, I think- I, don't get me wrong, Dale. I understand they've got other business to take care of before they take care of him. There are other deadlines and stuff that need to be met. But, you know, I, I just I don't understand why he's got to have the franchise tag put on him before they start talking long term. That almost seems backwards. Well, it covers their bases. I mean, you know, it gives you, first of all, it gives you a starting point, and it lets him know that, I mean, you know, we, they're very aware of what he said to Jeremy Fowler. Um, you know, that he would, he would either, he would consider, consider retiring or sitting out next year. Okay. Here's the money. This is what we're putting on you. Um, and they got to clear the space to do that too. So, I mean, any contract that they would sign him to now, um, right as they speak right now on, on the estimates of what the cap's going to be. And again, this is just the estimate. Uh, they've got like $3 million in cap space. So they're going to have to make moves one way or the other. And as you know, the Steelers traditionally under Kevin Colbert don't like to make moves until they absolutely have to. They like to cover their bases. And so I think that's why they wait. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I just, uh, from my point of view, <laughs> Look, if if he's nuts enough to walk, he's not going to retire. I, I just I would not buy that as a threat. No, I don't believe that either. But I mean, it, you know, is it is it worth banging your head against a wall for the next two months to try to work out a deal with his agent when he turned down uh, what they thought was a good deal last year? So you're not suggesting they're going to spend so much they couldn't franchise him, are you? Well, I think they you know they they sit and they wait and see. And see what uh, what you know what becomes available. In the meantime, they protect their interests by putting the franchise tag on. Well, Dale, you're an important guy. You got two jobs now, so I appreciate the time. Oh, no problem, Tim. Anytime. All right, that is Dale Lolly from DKPittsburghSports.com, editor in chief and Pittsburgh Steelers beat writer for that outlet. And you can also hear him on SNR, and you can hear him here with me on the pregame show as well as on DVE on Sundays or Mondays or Thursdays, or I imagine they'll have a Christmas Day game on a Tuesday for the Steelers next year on the pregame show. Oh, we got the Bill Burr thing ready. All right, in honor of New England versus Philadelphia in the Super Bowl, when we come back, Bill Burr's rant against Philadelphia. We'll have that for you before the top of the hour next. Tim Benson for Adam. Adam's choice of music here? Is this your choice of music? Help me out. What am I missing here? What's the reference? Oh, no reference. Just Otis Redding, greatest singer of all time. Oh, all right. I thought you might drop in, like, Breaking Bad for Bill Burr or something like that. I didn't know where you were going with it. Yeah, so if you haven't heard this before, um, this is a while ago, right? This is like 2006. This thing's almost 10 years old now, right? So, uh, more than 10 years old. Sorry, it's 2006. It was. So, Bill Burr, who's a uh, big-time Boston sports fan, he's from Canton, Massachusetts, right? So, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what inspired this. He just got into it with a bunch of people from Philadelphia. He's doing a set in Philly. I think there was a comedy fest, and they were booing certain comics, and he was trying to defend them. For no reason, they were just booing and heckling all these comics. So, Bill Burr was trying to come to their defense, the comics defense. Okay, was the Comedy Fest in Philly? It was, yeah. And it was, so just it was right just, after the Super Bowl, of course. It was Philly fans trying to live up to the reputation of being Philly fans because that's what they do. 
And that's why we got to grease up poles and teach our police horses how to box and prevent the friggin' Rocky statue from getting run over by a Thunderbird or whatever. Wasn't that the case? Somebody drove up the steps of the museum, right? Just to drive their car up to the Rocky statue? Yeah, it looked like it was like some sort of 4x4 vehicle. What does Rocky have to do with this? Isn't there a Vince Papalia statue somewhere? Like Chuck Bednarik statue? Can't we keep the theme consistent? Something? All right, so if you haven't heard this, you should have. But I figured most people from Pittsburgh have. You might need a refresher. But since we need a laugh, we need to find some positive to be gleaned from Philadelphia versus New England in the Super Bowl. Here's Bill Burr going off on these Philly fans at this comedy fest. No, I'm segueing into my next joke. You can all relick my red all you. You can line up in your Harold Carmichael jerseys. And one at a time, you can all my Like, that was the start, right? I, I believe it's still going. I think it's still going on right now. And thank God that Bill Burr said every one of those words. All right, I'm going to have to play that again. I'm going to have to close out the show with that just to set the tone for the week. Because we have to just sit back, right, for Super Bowl week and do nothing but throw barbs and insults and be petty and be jealous and be full of critiques and angst and nastiness towards these two towns as they play in the Super Bowl. Because that's the only fun we can derive from this. Either our arch-rival city down the turnpike wins, or the team that we've grown to hate more than any other wins again and ties the Steelers for all-time franchise supremacy in the Super Bowl era. You can't, there's no winning here. So you just hope that some sort of chaos befalls the both, right? It hits both franchises. A couple of things, though, about both those games. Seriously, before you're at the top of the hour. Back to actual sports. Oh, I don't know. We don't have to. Um, what I thought would be the least likely scenario for that NFC Championship game ended up taking place for the Vikings and Eagles. I thought the Vikings would win another really tight one-possession game like they did versus New Orleans. If that didn't happen, the vision of the Eagles... Winning the same way that they did the week before against Atlanta wasn't hard to conjure up. Like, ugly up the game. Um, you know, if the Vikings wanted to keep the score down, they could live there. The Falcons might have trouble in the red zone again. Or excuse me, the Eagles opponent. It was the Falcons last week. Maybe it was going to be the Vikings this week. We'd have trouble in the red zone again. I, I could see the Eagles winning that kind of game, potentially. Also, I could have envisioned that the Vikings defense just chewed up Nick Foles and would coast to a blowout. I never pictured what took place. I simply just couldn't foresee what ended up playing out in that game, which was an Eagles romp. With that emotional carryover from the Stephon Diggs score last week 
the prospect of hosting a home game for the Super Bowl, there are simply too many good vibes for me to concoct what transpired. For as great of a season as the Vikings had, the season ended with a spectacular and unexpected thud in that game. And just to sort of underscore the point, you know what's funny about that whole Super Bowl being a Minnesota thing? You know who's happy that the Philadelphia Eagles won that football game? The city of Minnesota, right? I mean, think how many tourism dollars they would have lost out on if an NFC visiting team wasn't a participant. There might be, I don't know, 50,000, 40,000, 30 at the least, that come in that otherwise wouldn't have come in from a visiting NFC city where you already have the captive audience of the Viking fans that don't need hotel rooms at exorbitant rates. So they're probably pretty happy. Like the Chamber of Commerce is probably pretty happy. The Vikings themselves and the city itself, absolutely not. Meanwhile, in the AFC game, because we talked about it from a Pittsburgh standpoint, just just two things to bring up about the AFC game that it's independent of the Steelers because we spent a lot of time on the Steelers' angle. As always, Tom Brady, lead story in New England after yet another fourth-quarter postseason comeback. But you got to leave some headlines for Danny Amendola, too. I mean, the box score looks okay. Seven catches, 84 yards. But anyone who will think back on that game will probably remember it as being about a dozen for 200 because that's the way it felt. Two of his grabs were for scores, including that toe tap in front of the end line with 2.48 to go to post the game-winning TV TD. He had... That third and 18 conversion to set up his own touchdown earlier in the fourth quarter as well. Plus, there was that 20-yard pass. That punt return to Jacksonville's 30 to begin the final TD drive. In a game with no Julian Edelman, eventually no Rob Gronkowski. In a game where there were a few drops and his quarterback wasn't operating at 100% physically, Amendola became everything to the Patriots and more. And then he goes home and nails a former Miss Universe. From Cranston, Rhode Island, of all places. How does that work? Like he upgraded from Kay Adams. How do you do that? And from the Jaguars' perspective, you know, Doug Marone actually, I think, helped take some heat off the league with his halftime interview on CBS Sunday. An entire nation thinks that New England gets the benefit of all the calls from the officials, right? 98 yards versus 10 in flags for the Jaguars during the AFC Championship game. But Marone endorsed the penalty for Barry Church hitting Rob Gronkowski in the helmet. That helped New England get into scoring position late in the third quarter. By definition of the rule, he and the officials were right. A flag should have been thrown there. But what is Church supposed to do? He was bracing himself to absorb a collision from Gronkowski as much as he was attempting to initiate one. Also, it was as much shoulder-to-shoulder at first as it was helmet-to-helmet. That's what happens when a bigger intended receiver is starting to come downward into a smaller defender. It's just the latest example of why if I was an NFL defensive back, I'd feel obligated to take the much more potentially dangerous route of taking out all pass receivers at the knees instead of anything above the waist at this point. Above the waist. Not the collarbone, the waist. Why not? The NFL seems to think player safety starts around the collarbone. No one's ever sued over an ACL injury before, but neck and head injuries they have, so that's why the rules are what they are. Me? Go for the knees. Take them all out. See what the NFL thinks then. 412-922-2874. When we come back, we get into the left bell discussion. We'll kick that around. We're going to talk Pirates later on in the second hour of the show. Matt Williamson joins us as well. Tim Benson for Adam.